Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Well, if you look close when you shake my hand today, you'll be able to tell that I've been doing remodeling again. <laughs> Band-Aids. One on each hand, yes. Although this one, this one is remodeling related or repair related, but it, technically I got it at the store while I was picking up materials and sawing them in half. I had to look all over Home Depot before I could find a hacksaw to cut something in half with. But We're working on our kitchen and uh, started into the next phase of working on the kitchen, which is uh, changing out the lighting, which requires a little, little electrical, a little carpentry, a little, little of everything. So, as always, I start with the easiest part of the project. Now, someday I'm going to be like Rob Houston. Now, he, he manages the facility for the whole St. Joseph Hospital there. And I would guess that before they started this $70 million remodel, they had a real good plan in mind before they started. But I don't waste any time on a plan. <laughs> I went to Sears and Roebuck and got a hole cut and saw and just started right into it. <laughs> I'm going to change out the lights. It's not a big deal. You know, they have a couple of wire nuts, uh, you know, whatever. So I, 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 cut, I got a beautiful, I got one of those rotary cutting tools. Oh, man. It is a hiss. Oh, yeah. So I cut a hole and, and uh, well, I took my light fixture down first. And, boy, you know, there was more than two wires up in there. More than three. Yeah, I know there's a ground wire. So I'm looking up in there. So I think, well... I'm, I'm going to cut a hole, cut my pole where I want the light to be, and then I can kind of reach up in there. So I cut the hole, and you know the stud's too close. So I cut another hole, <laughs> and I work, and I tear, and I rip, and shred, and pretty soon I've got a light hanging on there, and it works, but it's on all the time. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> kind of a nightlight and a daylight. <laughs> Oh, I hate that when that happens. Because I, and then, uh, but I, real, I, I knew why it had happened, actually. I, I wasn't uh, befuddled by this. But I thought, oh man, fixing that's going to be tough, you know. So, leave that one behind. Let's go to another light. <laughs> you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So I, I tear that thing out, and man, there's just a mass of wires up in there. And I've got to take the little box out so I can put this new fixture and shove it up in there and so on. So I think, okay, all these wires are hooked this way, and I've got to take them apart to get them into my little box. So I, I kind of memorize how they all are and try to take them all apart and put them in there. <laughs> Do you think that worked? No. <laughs> now, if I was like Carl, I would have labeled the wires before I took them apart. But I don't need to waste no stinking time labeling the wires. So I hook it up and nothing. 
It's, you know, I got one on all the time, one off all the time. <laughs> kind of balances out, right? And then I go over, I go back to the original light, and it's backwards. Now when I, when I turn it up, it's off, and when it's down, it's on. I think, oh, man. So I did the only thing reasonable. I took a shower and went to lunch. Well, then I call Carl. <laughs> no, see, no, that's, that's the smart thing. See, the lunch was the reasonable thing. And then I said, help, Mr. Wizard. <laughs> Carl's our resident electrician, and he came over, and he, he looked, and he fixed, and boy, pretty soon all the lights work. What do you know? Oh, my goodness. You know what? It's easy to mess things up. It's hard to make things right. Takes no effort at all to mess things up. You know what? In your life, it takes no effort at all to mix, mess, mess things up. But it takes effort to keep from ruining your life. <laughs> and Hebrews chapter 2 is going to warn us about <sighs> ruining our lives because of taking the easy path. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also, bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. I believe God tells us three things here about avoiding ruin in our spiritual life, which often is not just our spiritual life, but can bring ruin in our whole life. The first thing he says is this. Avoiding ruin requires an enduring commitment to God's message. Verse, chapter 1 of Hebrews is all about the truth of God and the delivery of the truth of God and how the, the, the truth of God has been completed in Jesus and we should pay attention to that. The folks who received this letter were most likely Jewish people who had become Christians and they were starting to look at their life saying, you know, I'm, I kind of like the Old Testament and those old ways, and I kind of want to go back there. And God sent this book to say, don't go back. That was for then, and now Jesus has completed it. And in God's truth given to us through the person of Jesus, chapter 2 says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. What were the things that these people would have heard? Well, I think this is a sort of a synonym phrase, if you will, for the truth of God. In the Bible, the truth of God is spoken of in different ways, or different names of it, if you will. In 1 Corinthians 15, we hear about the gospel, which in its heart refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that we are sinners, and that we can be changed by the by the, uh, by the work of Christ. But the word gospel is also a reference to the whole message of God. It's a good news. It's a wonderful news. The message of God is referred to in 2 John 9 as the doctrine of Christ. 
Now we use the term Christology today to refer to the Bible's teaching about the person of Christ, but really, some people have said, and I wouldn't disagree completely, that the whole Bible is about Christ in one way or another. If we go all the way back to Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God says to Eve, Eve, there's going to be somebody come out of your descendants who's going to bruise the head of Satan. So all the way back there, God's talking about Jesus. The doctrine of Christ could really be a reference to the whole Bible as well as to the person of Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, it's the, the word of God is referred to as the faith and elsewhere as the faith once delivered to the saints. He says, we must pay attention to what we have heard. These people knew the truth of God. Ignorance was not their problem. Uh, most of you have been here for a period of time. Most of you have heard the word of God. Some of you have heard the word of God for longer than I've been alive. Ignorance is not a problem. You know the truth. And he's talking to people like us when he says, you know the truth, now you need to hang on to the truth. <clears throat> if you look here at the words, there's, there's a, kind of a, uh, I don't know if I call it a play on words, but there are some word pictures that are used throughout this passage. When he says, we must give the more earnest heed, or the NIV says, pay careful attention. It literally means to bring something close or to bring it near one of the ways it was used in the ancient Greek language was of uh, tying a ship up to the dock, which is essentially tying it to the land. If a ship is on a body of water, it will move. Ships don't stand still on bodies of water. Even on lakes, they don't stand still. There's, there's a wind blowing or something. The ship just drifts until it's anchored down or tied to the land in some way. And what he is saying here in a word picture is, if you don't tie yourself to the word of God, you're going to drift through life and drift through your Christianity. When I was a youth pastor, <clears throat> when I was a youth pastor, Sue and I took our youth group, uh, Sue and I and some other adults took our youth group on a uh, five-day hike. And it was out in a wilderness area out on the peninsula, and we're hiking along, and Weather was kind of lousy, and the creeks were kind of high compared to what I expected. And we came to this one creek we had to go across, and it was, oh, I don't know, probably at least as far as from here to Jerry or so. It was a pretty good-sized creek. And it wasn't too deep, so some of the kids walked across and just got their shoes wet. And some of them took their shoes off and walked across, and I thought, well, I don't like either one of those options. So I look up and down the creek, and well, here, down here a little ways, here's a big old tree laying right across, about... You know, I don't know, from the ground up, it was probably, you know, up, up in here somewhere. And I thought, well, I can climb right up on the stump of that thing and walk right over on that tree. And I'm carrying, you know, 60 pounds or so on a backpack. And, of course, I was a little more svelte, you know, back then. And uh, so I get over to the other side, and I'm looking down. See, there was kind of a ladder on this side, but there's no ladder on this side over here. <laughs> I'm thinking, now I've got to get back down. So I thought, hey, no problem. I had a rope with me. So I take the rope out, and I tie it to the tree. And I got my good leather gloves on, and I got a hold of that rope. I'm going to let myself down. 
And somewhere in the process of letting myself down, I did a 360. Wow! Boom! Right on the ground, just like that. With a rope in my hand, just like that. <laughs> Holding on for dear life. And I went, no problem. <sighs> Folks, God says, you got to get a good grip on the truth that he has given us in the word. Or else your life is going to be a problem. He uses this word drift by. Lest we drift, drift away. It's another nautical kind of term of the ship drifting away. He says, tie a knot to the word of God and hang on. And if you do, you'll be in good shape. We've got to be committed. We have to have an enduring commitment to the truth of God. Ephesians 4.14 uses a similar kind of illustration when it says, if we don't grow up in God and in his truth, we will be like the ships of the sea which are driven by every wind of doctrine. If you don't know the truth of God, and you do what I do on Sunday morning, which is channel surf through the religious programs, you might just go, well, that sounds pretty good to me. And it may lead your life straight into ruin. If you don't know the word of God and you come to a crisis point in your life and if you're not hanging on to the word and you say, what do I do? Do I go this way? Do I go that way? Do I do this? Do I do that? And you think, well, I guess this works out. This looks good. And you walk over this way and pretty soon you're in ruin. God says, take a rope, <laughs> your faith, and tie a knot onto the word of God and hang on. Anchor yourself to God's truth. I want you to think about something real profound here. What do you have to do to drift downstream on a float on a river? Nothing. Not a single thing. But if you want to be secure, you tie a rope on the land and you tie it on your vessel and you don't go anywhere. That's how we be strong, how we can be strong in life and how we can live out what he tells us in these next couple of verses. He says, if we're going to avoid ruin, we have to have an enduring commitment to God's truth. And secondly, we have to, re we have to learn from the past. Now, when, he come, when we come to verse 2, he, he connects back to one of the broad areas of truth that he's working through in the beginning of this message. And that is, he's, he's trying to help these people understand that they should not be pursuing or paying attention to anything that they connect with angels because Christ is so much superior to the angels. And the truth that he brought is superior to the angels. Now here he refers back to this when he says, for if the word spoken through angels. Now if you're like me, and I'll confess my ignorance here, I, I've been serving the Lord in a full-time basis for 25 years and I've known the Lord for most of my 46 years. I never thought about, I, I never knew that the angels had anything to do with revealing God's truth until I studied this passage the last few weeks. And what we find, if we go back, and we won't take time to do it this morning, but we could go back to Deuteronomy 33.2, and we would read this, 
And the Lord came from Sinai, and he rose up from Seir unto them, and he shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints, or literally ten thousands of holy ones. He's talking about Mount Sinai and the experience of the people of God coming to Mount Sinai and Moses going up Mount Sinai to receive the law. And it says that when God came, he came with ten thousands of his holy ones. And when it says ten thousands, plural, it means many, 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 many. And we say, well, that doesn't say angels. You're right. But in Psalm 68, 17, we read this. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels, and the Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. Now, this is referred to by Stephen in Acts 7.38. It's referred to by Paul in Galatians 3.19. And here's the summary of it. A, a quote from an author I read this week, which I think also gives testament to chapter 1. In some way, not fully elaborated in Scripture, the law was given through the angels. Now, why is that an important statement? It's important because of this. God doesn't tell us much about what the angels did. So how much... Should we make of it? Not very much. The problem the people who received this letter had was they and their Jewish brethren had made a big deal about the angels. And in these people were in danger of making a bigger deal about the angels than they did about Jesus. Who, as we heard from Timber, who read John 1, Jesus is called the Word of God. He is the ultimate communication of God. And so, yes, God used angels in somehow in the process of communicating his truth to his people on Mount Sinai and perhaps other times. In fact, we know of other times in the Old Testament when God sent angels to, to give the message. God sent angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, hey, this place is going to be destroyed. So, yeah, God used angels in the communication of his truth in the Old Testament. Now, the, the point that the message of Hebrews comes to here in verse 2 is this. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast or immovable, you know, unchanging, if every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, or we would better phrase it not reward, but punishment. He says, folks, listen to something. The angels communicated God's truth to man and part of the result was punishment on those folks. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. See, what he's getting to here is the importance of us hanging on to God's truth in this age, but he uses how God enforced his truth in the previous age to teach these people. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, that's the, the ancestors of the Jewish people, all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's talking about when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus and God put a cloud to guide them and they went through the Red Sea. This is the, the scenario. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. That's the manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink. That's when they struck the rock and the water came out. It was picturing Jesus as the water of life. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But, but, with most of them, 
God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell dead. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I believe, as a sidebar, folks, that this passage tells you what to take from the Old Testament. It tells you to take the broad moral lessons that never change with God. And what's the broad moral lesson of this passage? If you ignore God and His truth long enough and hard enough, God will judge you, including smiting you dead. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's kind of harsh. You know what 1 John 5 talks about? It talks about the sin leading to death. And he says, Christian, don't pray about that sin. Whoa. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Person in the church living in sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul says, when you get together as a church, you deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul may be saved. Ooh, we've never done that here. You all come together, we're going to condemn somebody to die. Yeah, that's serious business. But you know what this passage is telling us? God expects his children to live by his rules. Now, the old, you need to get a picture in your mind of the Old Testament and what God was showing us. When those folks were in Egypt, and God said, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. Egypt pictures sin for us in the Old Testament. These people are living in bondage in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to free you and take you to a promised land, a, a wonderful place. So what does he do? He says, you kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and you be inside the house with that blood figuratively covering you, and you do that because you believe in me, and you be eating the lamb and doing what I tell you, and I'm going to send the death angel through Egypt, and everybody who didn't do what I said is going to die. Not everybody, excuse me, the firstborn of man and beast is going to die. And so God sent this terrible judgment on Egypt. But all the people who were covered by the blood were passed over. They were saved. That's where the word Passover comes from. So they're delivered out of Egypt. And the picture is given to us of them believing in God and becoming his children, if you will. His, not Christians, because that wasn't the Christian era, but they became the Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers. So they go across the Red Sea. They see the miracles. They come to Mount Sinai. And they can't even wait for God to come back, to send Moses back with the law, but they build an idol, and they, it says they rose up to play. No doubt it was some kind of debauched, a sinful, immoral celebration of worshiping this idol. And what did God do? He says, you obey me! They didn't learn. They keep going. They come up to a place called Kadesh Barnea. 
And they send out spies into the land of, of uh, what we call Israel today, or Canaan back then. They send out spies and to see what the land is like. And the 12 spies, one from each tribe, they come back and say, Wow, it's a great place, but there's giants there. And 10 of the spies says, We can't do it. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, Yes, we can do it. And the mass of people voted and said, No, we can't do it. And so God voted, and he says, you won't do it. You will wander in the wilderness until everybody 20 years of age and older dies for your unbelief. Now think about this. Get the picture, folks. Salvation coming out of Egypt. What did they lose because of their lack of belief in God? They lost their life. Their life was cut short. God didn't intend for them to die in the wilderness, and he didn't intend for them to die at that time. But they lost their life. Their life was cut short by God because of their unbelief. And number two, they lost future rewards and blessings they could have gained. These are our examples. Do you understand that? And so when 1 John 5 says, there is sin that leads to death, you know what that means? That means God takes your life seriously. And he takes your righteousness seriously. I have no way of knowing who God has ever taken in judgment. He doesn't reveal that to me. And he doesn't reveal it to you. I have some guesses about a few people. Just a handful. Hebrews chapter 2. Go back there now. He says, look folks. You want to elevate the preaching of the word of angels? Realize something. God held them accountable. He says, every transgression and disobedience received a reward. The word transgression means to step over the line. The word disobedience means not to pay attention to, literally. And it seems to be the idea of sins that you actively commit and sins that you just omit doing what God has told you to do. He said... Angels were used by God to deliver his truth, and God expected people to follow that truth. Now, those people did not lose their salvation. That's not what it's talking about. Those Old Testament believers lost their life and lost their future for reward and potential. Now, he goes on to us in verse 3. How shall we escape... He says, if those folks in the Old Testament times, if they did not escape... If their disobedience was punished by God, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God's standard has not decreased. God's standard has increased. He calls it so great of a salvation. What we will understand later as we go through the book of Hebrews is that we as believers in Christ, looking back at his sacrifice, enjoy all the benefits of God that he can possibly give to us human beings. We enjoy the benefit of being born again. We have the Holy Spirit within us. He empowers us. He enlightens us to understand the scripture. We enjoy the hope of the Holy Spirit, looking forward to heaven. We enjoy purpose in life. We don't live meaninglessly. We enjoy guidance from God's word. None of the folks in the Old Testament had the full blessing of God in that regard. We have this wonderful salvation that's been completed in Christ. They were looking forward to the things that we possess. 
And he says, folks, how shall we escape if we neglect what God has given us? Now, again, I don't believe this is talking about talking to an unbeliever who neglects salvation and goes to hell. It's talking to a Christian who will ignore his salvation and thereby drift through life. The word neglect, the word neglect means just that, to do nothing. And what he is saying here is, Christian, do you think that if you ignore God's truth and live any old way you want, that you're going to get away with that? Does that make sense? Look what he did in the Old Testament. Now, I, I will say this, and I'm not trying to you know, scare you into righteousness. I'm just trying to preach the word to you. Um, God seems to be much more gracious today than he was at times in that Old Testament time period. We don't seem to see large groups of people, of God's followers, struck dead at once. We don't seem to see that today. God seems to be more gracious. But what he tells us is, Christian, we have a responsibility to hang on to and live in the word and if we don't, we will not escape. The word neglect means to be careless, just to let things go. How do you neglect your salvation? How do you neglect your Christian life? Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? How do you neglect anything? Just by paying no attention to it. We might even say there are scales of neglect. I mean, you're all here in church, right? So you're not neglecting your Christian life. But are you neglecting it on Monday? Think, well, you know, I went to church yesterday. I'm good to go. I got six more days and I'll be back there again. Maybe enough. Maybe not. God's way is never about times and activities. It's more about our commitment to his truth. Philippians 2.12 says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now you say, well, am I supposed to earn my salvation? No, no, no. One author put it this way, I think it's well put. He said, God works our salvation into us, and we're supposed to work it out of us. <laughs> Not to get rid of it, but to put it to practice. I think first, 2 Peter 1.5 puts it very well when it says this, be diligent to add to your faith. And then there are a list of things put there. Be diligent to add to your faith. That be diligent sounds an awful lot like giving the more earnest heed in Hebrews 2.1. Warren Wiersbe made this observation. In my pastoral ministry, I have discovered that neglect of the word of God and prayer, both publicly and privately, is the cause of most spiritual drifting. The question for us today, folks, is are you paying attention to the great gift God has given you or are you neglecting it? Are you developing it? See, in God's wisdom, he has given us salvation. It is, it is all of him. All we do is put faith in the work that he has done. But once we have come into that faith, 
He expects us to work together with him in developing our godly life. I don't know exactly where God's effort and my effort meshes. I don't know how that comes together, but I know he's at work and I'm supposed to work with him. I'm supposed to be diligent to add to the faith that he's given me the godliness that he talks about in the word. I am not supposed to be drifting through life in any old path. I'm supposed to be tied to the word and investing myself in it and investing myself in time with him. And as we do that, as we do that, we are tied securely and we don't come to ruin. While I was studying on Friday and finishing up this message, actually I was all the way down to the conclusion and uh, uh, I had recently moved some cassette tapes in my office and I, I had played a certain song and, and then I saw this other tape and I thought, I'm going to give that to Kathy to play because one of the guys on that tape used to work here at this church. So I gave it to her and she said, well, I can't play it. It's all, you know, it doesn't work very good. So I put it in my tape player and it played better. And uh, the guy on the tape was a guy named John Witham, who was a minister of youth and music here way back in the day when some of these guys were young. And uh, I was too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, when none of us had gray hair. And uh, had a great musical group he was part of at Western Baptist College uh, called A Quiet Encounter. And several of my friends were part of this group. And they just did a, a wonderful, mellow kind of music. And as I, I was playing this tape, I heard one of my friends named Pete, I won't tell you his last name, but uh, he was in school with me. He sings these words, take me, Lord, take my life. Help me to learn your wisdom. Use me, your will, not mine. Let your, sh let your light shine inside me. Good words for those of us who don't want to neglect the great salvation we have been given. Unfortunately, my friend Pete, who sang those words, didn't pay attention to him. Now, he's a very successful man. He is a, uh, I believe, what is called an international banker in London, England. Last time I heard of him, last time I knew where he was. But his life has not been as successful as his career because somehow... He neglected what he was given. And if you knew his heritage, you would know that he was not only given this, but given this in a very big way. Friend, you have the real life-changing power of God that can be implemented because of the salvation you've been given. Take care of it today. Father, It's easy to neglect things. Sometimes it's easy to neglect you because we don't see you. There's all kinds of reasons we come up with, Father, but bottom line is you don't want us to neglect what you've given us. You want us to take it as seriously as you do. And I just pray that you'd help us to do that. Father, if there, if there are things that we've been letting go, things that we should be doing, Maybe we've been saying no in some areas and we should be saying yes. And maybe we've been saying yes and we should be saying no. Help us today to learn from the lesson of the past 
and not to think that we're going to be above your chastening hand. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.